Welcome to TP Talks, PwC's Global Transfer Pricing Podcast Series. My name is Dana Hart, and we welcome you to our next episode addressing the OECD Pillar 2 model rules. For this first episode in our series covering Pillar 2, we will kick off the discussion with an overview of the rules addressing some of the complexities and the role of transfer pricing. The panelists for today's podcast include Horacio Pena. Horacio is PwC's Transfer Pricing Global Leader. He's also the moderator for today. And back on the podcast, we have Georgia Maffini from PwC UK. Georgia formerly served as the Deputy Head in the Tax Policy and Statistics Division at the OECD. And last but not least, back on the podcast, we have Kartike Singh, a Transfer Pricing Principal with PwC's U.S. National Tax Practice. And with that, Horacio, I'll hand it over to you to get the discussion started. Thanks, Dana. As we know, last fall, over 136 nations, representing more than 90% of GDP, agreed to the most sweeping overhaul of tax rules in a century. The OECD estimates that this deal will collect over $150 billion and potentially reallocate another $125 billion in annual revenues. Just before Christmas, the OECD published the model rules on Pillar 2. Pillar 2 is the new per-country minimum tax system with a rate of 15%. Depending on how companies respond, many multinationals could end up paying much more in higher taxes. This is truly a massive radical change with profound implications for international taxation. In a way, it's really a game-changer. Back in my university days, I used to say that we, we used to play chess competitively, and we studied that it was best to break down a complex game into stages to first understand the new rules, building blocks, and definitions, and then break the long game into an opening to take the initiative, create open space for movement while avoiding fatal errors, the middle game, the most difficult part of the game where we heavy lifting of computations and calculations take place, and the end game, the final stage when one commits to one's winning strategy to see it through the end. Likewise here, we plan to release a series of podcasts covering Pillar 2 over the coming months as these rules become clearer. Today, we plan to provide a high-level overview of the rules and the concepts looking at some of the basic nuances and elements of complexity and highlight where transfer pricing plays a key role. So let's get started. Georgia, could you please walk us through the main building blocks of this new system? Thank you, Horacio. Yes, and so we are looking really at a sweeping change uh, of the international corporate tax system with Pillar 2. The main idea is very simple, but the application is very complex. The main idea is essentially that under the new system, multinationals will have to have an effective tax rate of at least 15% in each jurisdiction where they have a taxable presence. So if the effective tax rate is below that minimum, that 15%, then the multinational will need to top up in that jurisdiction to get its ETR to 15%. And that top up will be allocated to different countries according to whether we are applying the income inclusion rule, that is the primary rule, or the under tax payment rule. The income inclusion rule provides that the top up will go to the jurisdiction of the parent company 
um, the under tax payment rule instead says if there is no income inclusion rule, then that top up will be shared across jurisdictions in the ownership chain of the multinational. So this is the basic architecture where really the complexities of Pillar 2 come in is uh, in the calculation of the effective tax rate in each country. How do we go about calculating the effective tax rate in a jurisdiction? First, we have to identify the globe income for each entity in that jurisdiction. Globe income that is based on financial accounts with some adjustments. Globe income is not based on taxable uh, income. And then we have to calculate covered taxes. These are taxes that are uh, income taxes or similar to income taxes. And covered taxes are made of the current tax expense plus deferred taxes. And the calculations around deferred taxes are very, very complex. So once we have calculated the effective tax rate with covered taxes divided by globe income, we have to measure if that effective tax rate is below 15. If it is, then we have to calculate our top-up. The top-up, also a little bit complicated, is given by the top-up tax percentage, so the difference between your ETR and 15%, applied to your profit, your globe income in the jurisdiction, minus uh, a markup on payroll and tangible assets. Okay, so in this way, you arrive to the calculation of the top up. So you see that even if we wanted to give a brief, simple description of Pillar 2, we are really looking at a system that is very complex. And at the moment, we still don't have all the answers to the question that the Murder rules um, uh, raise. So we'll have to wait for another few weeks to see uh, more information on that with the commentary to the Murder rules. Yes, and, and Carnegie, Georgia alluded to many nuances and elements of complexity in the model rules. Can you outline for our listeners some of those at a high level? Sure, Horacio. Uh, and hi, everyone. Before I uh, start, I, I love the analogy with uh, Jess, Horacio. I will say, and I only speak for myself, that uh, hopefully my ability to deal and understand the Pillar 2 rules is a little bit better than my chess acumen, because if it is anything like my chess acumen, then I don't think the prospects are very rosy, at least for me. Uh, but going back to uh, your question, there are several uh, complexities and nuances that apply to the building blocks that Georgia described. So for example, the two main ones on the globe income, there are adjustments that are needed, and then there are uh, adjustments and nuances that relate to the calculation of the covered taxes. So starting with the globe income, the rules cover some very specific items that should and should not be included uh, in, in items of income. And the treatment around these issues, again, is not that straightforward. So I'll give you an example. When it comes to tax credits, uh, qualified refundable tax credits are included in the definition of globe income, whereas non-qualified refundable tax credits are not included. Uh, and the differences between these two types of credits is itself uh, a fairly subtle one. And these types of distinctions can be important because they have a bearing on the uh, globe income, the, the starting tax base, 
And then through that, they can have ramifications on your ETR calculation and then eventually whether you are subject to a top up or not. Uh, an issue that transfer pricing practitioners, at least here in the US, often have to deal with is with respect to stock-based compensation. And here, uh, the rules actually allow a taxpayer to elect to use the amounts of stock-based compensation that is available as a tax deduction instead of the amounts that are expensed on your financial accounts. Uh, all else equal, that should be a good thing. But here, again, there are very subtle complexities that may actually have long-term ramifications. So for example, if some or all of the amount of the stock-based compensation that is taken as a deduction goes unexercised, then the amount has to be reversed. And what I mean by that is it has to be added back to your uh, globe income in the year in which the option goes unexercised, so in the year in which the option expires. So again, this is potentially complicated, has a multiple year consequence, and can create some unanticipated effects for a taxpayer. And I should also add that this applies only for globe income purposes and globe calculation purposes. So there is no uh, other reason where the taxpayer may be monitoring these kinds of uh, effects. So again, it creates uh, additional challenges. Now, Georgia talked about the covered taxes and how that calculation includes both uh, the current tax expense and deferred tax expense. Now, it's interesting and somewhat surprising, actually, that the rules, when they look at deferred tax expenses, they have this interesting feature that deferred tax expense is recast at the minimum rate when the local jurisdiction rate under which that deferred tax expense is booked happens to be higher than that minimum tax rate. And again, this by itself may not be enough to pull the ETR for globe purposes below the 15%, but when coupled with some of the other differences and uh, complexities that we've alluded to, it can actually have some very unanticipated and surprising effects, and including pulling the ETR below 15% in a jurisdiction where a taxpayer doesn't expect you know, the tax rate to be anywhere close to 15% because the headline rate might be well north of 15%. There's also uh, the issue of post-filing adjustments and the tax rate changes that come with it, but uh, that's another area that's not very straightforward, and I think we're going to talk about it uh, uh, later in the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Cardigan. And uh, tremendous complexity, but locally we have uh, some complex models to help us with and powerful computers to help us with these computations. So I know that uh, transfer pricing plays an important role in ensuring that uh, the starting financial data used in determination of global income per entity is not distorted. Within that overall architecture of Pillar 2, Georgia, can you speak more about this and also point out where transfer pricing considerations figure and play a role? Thank you, Horacio. So it turns out that transfer pricing is much more important than we thought in Pillar 2 because the modern rules place the arm's length principle, so the ALP, really at the core of Pillar 2 calculations. And I don't think there is yet a full understanding of this point, but hopefully that will become clearer in the next uh, uh, few weeks. And it's interesting to understand why that is the case. So by design, the GLOBE regime is a minimum tax regime that applies at the jurisdictional level as we've said before, and as we said before, so you need to calculate your ETR at the jurisdictional level. 
This means that you need to have a measure of income in each jurisdiction. So you need to allocate income across jurisdictions. And how do you do that? Well, the only mechanism on which there is international consensus remains the arms length standard, despite all the recent uh, discussions on formulary apportionment. So you need to use the arms length standard to allocate income also for the purpose of globe of, of pillar two and that's where the centrality of the ALP comes from in the calculation for uh, Pillar 2. And then, Horacio, a bit more well, concretely, probably, there is a specific article in the Modern Rules that is uh, of great importance, I think, for transfer pricing professionals, and it's Article 3.2.3. Now, the interpretation of this article is still a bit of, uh, a question mark. There is still uncertainty on the interpretation of this article and hopefully the commentary to the model rules in the next few weeks will clarify uh, that interpretation. But the article essentially tells you that when a transaction between two constituent entities located clearly in two different jurisdictions is not recorded in the same amount in the accounts of the both entities, or the transaction is not consistent with the ALP, the transaction must be adjusted as to be in the same amount and consistent with the ALP. So it's a pretty strong statement on how you need to price your transactions for the purpose of Pillar 2. And also, you know, in a similar vein, really, the Moodle rules treat uh, the main entity and its PE as two separate constituent entities for the purpose purely of globe of uh, pillar two. So we will clearly need to allocate income to that PE. How do we do that in the traditional way? So um, uh, using the applicable treaty, the ALP and transfer pricing. And, and so what about intercompany arrangements uh, from a regular implementation perspective, Georgia? Yes, yeah, so uh, really an, uh, an implication of what we just said is that intercompany arrangements become a very important consideration for Pillar 2. So we will need to look at um, uh, intercompany arrangements also under the lens of Pillar 2. So we will need to ask, you know, what are the implications of this arrangement for Pillar 2? And this is for two reasons. One, we want to anticipate uh, the many pitfalls that Pillar 2 can have, and Kartikeya took us through some of these pitfalls, but also intercompany arrangements could mitigate some of those pitfalls uh, of Pillar 2. So very important to now look at these arrangements under the lens of Pillar 2. So clearly, transfer pricing outcomes and the arm's length principle will have a role in shaping the global income tax base. These rules are very complex and will create a great deal of uncertainty. On top of that, we're already seeing many tax disputes around the world. So, so Carnegie, how do transfer pricing controversies and particular government initiative adjustments play into this? Yeah, I, and I should caveat, as Georgia has said before, that the interpretation of these rules is still open. There are still questions and uncertainty around how these rules will actually work. So the commentary that we are still awaiting is going to play an important role. But with that caveat out of the way, the short answer is that when you layer on 
you know, transfer pricing disputes and, you know, our experience with those disputes, you know, together with these pillar two rules, what, what you find is that you, you'll have a situation that is already complex made potentially far more complex. So let's start with how the model rules treat post-filing adjustments. Uh, and by post-filing adjustments, I mean an adjustment to the tax liability and therefore the covered taxes after a tax return has been filed. And the interesting thing here is that the model rules adopt a different treatment depending on whether the adjustment by uh, a taxing authority increases or reduces the covered taxes. So for an adjustment that increases the tax liability for a previous year, that increase is going to be reflected in the covered taxes in the current year. And by the current year, I'm, I, what I mean is the year in which the adjustment is made and not the, the year to which the adjustment relates to. Now, in contrast, for an adjustment that reduces the tax liability, that reduction will have to be reflected in the covered taxes for the previous year, the old year. Now, consider the complexity this introduces in the context of your typical life cycle of transfer pricing controversy and tax authority initiated adjustments. Now, let's say you have an increase in tax liability associated with a prior year. And for GLOW purposes, you now need to reflect that in the covered taxes for the current year. So far, so good. Now, as in many cases, imagine that the taxpayer pursues MAP to get relief from double taxation, which will take its own time, given you know, the backlog and the usual time cycle for these kinds of cases. And at the end of this, best case scenario, let's say that the taxpayers provided relief in the counterparty jurisdiction, and that therefore results in a downward adjustment in the income in that jurisdiction and the tax liability. Now, this reduced tax liability now has to be reflected in terms of reduced covered taxes for GLOW purposes for that prior year. Now, conceivably, this would also result in a corresponding downward adjustment to GLOBE income, but you can see that it nonetheless introduces an, an added layer of complexity and consequences to TP controversy and dispute uh, resolution. And the main takeaway uh, in all of this is that Transfer pricing controversy has always been painful and a source of uncertainty for taxpayers. But what you're going to find is that the stakes and consequences of such controversy are going to be even higher and are going to get compounded in a pillar two world. And therefore, audit preparedness and sustaining TP positions is going to be even more important and more of a priority area. Those are great insights. Um, before we wrap up, George and Carnegie, I think it would be great if you can give our listeners your key takeaways from today's discussion. I think, Horacio, I would want to reinstate the fact uh, that uh, the ALP transfer pricing are key components of Pillar 2, both in terms of how Pillar 2 works, but also in terms of solutions, possibly to mitigate some of the pitfalls of Pillar 2. And I think this has been a bit under the radar so far. So transfer pricing professionals need to be very close to Pillar 2. And in this context, probably the most important appointment in the next few weeks is the publication of the commentary on the OECD model rules, which we expect will detail a little better the role of the ALP and of transfer pricing adjustments of some of the points that uh, Kartikeya has just described, although in fairness, I think we will be working with a lot of uncertainty uh, for a long time. And if you like, one way of taming that uncertainty is to do modeling. And remember that in the modeling for Pillar 2, you need to think about transfer pricing 
and transfer pricing adjustments. And I think George has covered the main points really well. So I'll just focus on uh, another takeaway and things that we've touched upon, hopefully. Uh, and, and that is that, you know, these rules and particularly the certain aspects of them will create a new dynamic. It's going to create a new set of incentives for both taxpayers and governments. And there'll be this new interplay between income allocation outcomes that are shaped by intercompany arrangements that the way Georgia talked about it. And this will require taxpayers to think through even more than before the consequences and ramifications of their transfer pricing positions, both from a structural long-term standpoint, but also in terms of their short-term effects, given the, the many short-term pitfalls that pillar two rules can create. Uh, so that's one key point. But then the other point also is that uh, we will also need to wait and watch how governments react to this new world and this new world with new set of incentives uh, that pillar two will create in terms of, you know, what will be the new kind of equilibrium tax rates uh, what will be the situation uh, around, let's say, adoption of domestic minimum taxes and so on and so forth. And so there's really lots to watch for in this space. And um, as transfer pricing practitioners, it's going to be interesting for us as well. Thank you, George and Carnegie. You've given us some great fundamentals on how to start thinking about the role of transfer pricing in the new system of pillar two taxation. This regime brings a whole new set of rules and permutations never seen before, which will require a whole new way of thinking. I also want to thank our listeners. And as I mentioned in the beginning, we will be releasing a series of podcasts covering the Pillar 2 commentary and implementation framework, building on what we have discussed today. So stay tuned. Thanks again for listening and have a great day. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.